I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, today I am sitting down with one of my favorite finance writers, Nick Majuli. So Nick's the creator of the blog of Dollars and Data, and he's also the chief operating officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Nick has been someone who's been producing just amazing, incredible, insightful comment around finance now for years. I've really appreciated his stuff. So we dive all into how he got started in writing, his writing process, how he thinks through decision-making, uh, a lot about personal finance. And this is something he's deeply in tune with right now because he has a new book coming out called Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. And Nick just shares a number of incredible personal finance and, uh, tips and bits of advice that I think anyone who listens to this is really going to enjoy. So I hope you guys have fun listening to my conversation with Nick Majuli. I have to tell you about the product I'm obsessed with right now. And when I say obsessed, I mean it. I am honestly obsessed and using this continually. So this is my Brava Smart Oven. So I actually used a Brava at a friend's house a few weeks ago. And after using it, I said I have to reach out to the team at Brava and bring them on as a partner of the podcast because of how much I love my Brava Smart Oven. So Brava is the world's fastest and most advanced smart oven that cooks with the power of light. So I had no idea about this, but cooking with light is actually two to four times faster than any other cooking technology. So being a busy father with two kids, I need something that's going to cook delicious, healthy meals, is really fast and super convenient. And my Brava checks the box on all three of those. Just last night, I whipped up a mouth-watering salmon. You know, one of the ones with the, the crispy, flaky outside, but then juicy, tender inside. And I also had a side of broccoli and butternut squash. And I cooked this all to perfection at the same time. It doesn't matter if it's breakfast, dinner, dessert. My Brava takes care of it all. So when I said it was fast and convenient, the team at Brava honestly knocked this out of the park. Imagine cooking your entire meal just with the press of a button. All you do is select what you're cooking, load your tray, and press the green button. They have thousands of fully automated recipes created by professional chefs, so your meal is perfect every single time. And a really crazy part, Brava regularly updates with new recipes and cooking modes all for free. There really isn't a more convenient and impressive cooking experience I've ever had. Cook crispy, bubbly pizza in 10 minutes, eggs and toast at the same time, you can even do a tray of roasted potatoes in 15 minutes, all with zero preheating. And one really fun thing, my, my kids love watching this, is you can actually watch your food cook on the Brava app, which is just really fun. It's like having an automated sous chef right at your side. So if you want to start having healthier, better meals, check out brava.com and make sure to enter code what got you there at checkoff for $200 off. Yes, $200 off. That's www.brava.com, and at checkout, enter code what got you there. If you're someone who's looking to join a hyper-growth company that's global and 100% remote, then you might want to listen up and hear all about the exciting job opportunities at Clipboard Health. Most of us have known someone who never got the health care they needed, you know, one of those people who fell through the cracks. That's because America's hospitals are short-staffed. They don't have enough nurses, so patients don't get the care they deserve. I've personally had family members not get the care they deserve, which is why I appreciate and care so much about what Clipboard Health is doing. Clipboard Health matches nurses with hospitals and nursing homes so that patients get the care they need and nurses find the work they want. Clipboard Health is fixing a broken healthcare staffing marketplace, and they're also scaling a hyper-growth business at the exact same time. Clipboard Health is a Silicon Valley unicorn, and they're looking for people to join their mission to fix staffing in healthcare and give nurses more opportunities. Clipboard Health is looking for great software engineers, product managers, and operations leaders to join them today. They're global, and remember, they're 100% remote, so no matter where you live in the U.S. or the world, they want to talk to you. 
you can check out great opportunities at clipboardhealth.com forward slash WGYT. That's clipboardhealth.com forward slash WGYT. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Nick, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Good, good. How are you doing? It's starting to warm up a little in New York City, barely, but we're still kind of cold. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in South Florida, so the, the heat's been here. I think yeah. we're, hitting, we're hitting 90 today. But, oh uh, my gosh, I'm so jealous. I'm really pumped about this one. Uh, your work, uh, I've been reading for a number of years now. You're a really interesting thinker, the way you see finance, risk, all, all these different things that like really capture my attention. But but there's a quote I would love to start with, and I just want to get your take on it because I know it's one that deeply resonates for you, and it's fear has a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence. And I would love to know what your thoughts are with that quote. So that quote comes from Jeremy Siegel, and uh, so I think it stalks for the long run. I don't know exactly which edition. I think technically that's not the exact quote, but I think uh, Nick Murray re-quoted it, and that's where I first saw it. But the whole idea behind that, you know, fear has a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence is just, you know, I'm a very data-driven person. And of course, data isn't everything. There are times when emotions overcome data, when mindset's more important than numbers. And I, I understand that. But for a lot of the things I do, I really believe like you have to work on evidence, right? And I think evidence generally wins out over the long run. I mean, and so there's a lot more fear around whether that's thing in investing, whether that's, you know, going out, you know, somewhere and you're worried about some attacker or something like these things are generally very rare type of things. And so just kind of keeping evidence in mind is, is really important in like my day-to-day life and everything. So how do you think about fear in, in the unknowns for you where you don't have evidence to back it up? Uh, that's tough. I guess you have to try and find corollaries. I think like right now, for example, you know, everything with crypto is like a very big unknown. Like we don't have, how often is a new asset class invented? Like a brand new asset class. It's very rare. And most asset classes are usually based on other asset classes, right? You can be like, oh, well, subprime mortgages, that's different. Or, you know, mortgage-backed securities, like that is a new kind of asset class, but it really is just a derivative. It's like linked to mortgages. So mortgage payments, and there's ways you can try and model it. But, you know, crypto is completely new. It's like, what's the value prop? Is it like, okay, I just have this, this private bank, you know, this private wallet that I can move anywhere. I can basically move money around the world instantly. There's value there, but then it's like, well, there's no income on it either. So like maybe you can stake and make some money on it or whatever. But it, because it's such a new asset class, I think the fear there is just, I just don't know. And I don't have enough data. And all the data we have is, isn't unfortunately biased in the sense because everything's been up and to the right. So anything you run that says, should I buy Bitcoin? It's going to always say yes. Like there's no answer that's not yes. Now, of course, now Bitcoin is, you know, maybe it's hit you know, the most recent high was like, you know, 68, 69,000, whatever it was. And now it's at 40 something. Again, it's been jumping around back and down around those prices. So I don't know what's going to happen. And that's kind of the unknown, right? But this is this is the nature of investing. There's new stuff that happens. You kind of just have to try your best, right? With new stuff. And just, it, I think for you as a person, you just have to control your risk. So like you have to just control, if you don't know, if you're like, I have no idea what this is going to be like, then mitigate your risk and don't put, you know, hundred percent of your portfolio in there, but a couple percent, like I think I have 3% in crypto right now. I probably need to have a little more. I think I'm going to get to like five, but you know, a couple percent isn't going to hurt. Yeah. This is a question. This is like a a broader question around just like your overall approach. You mentioned looking for data and things like that. When you're trying to better understand something, how do you approach that? Right? Like what are all the, the different inputs you're looking at just to get a better grasp of that? Yeah. So I'll, I usually, the first thing I try to do is find like who are the experts in this field and kind of see what they're saying. Uh, you have to think a little bit about first principles as well to say like, does this even make sense? Because sometimes even the experts, you know, everyone just repeats the same information over and over without us even testing it. And I can give an example of that. It's like someone's like, you know, almost, it's almost universal advice to max out your 401k. And that's one of those things where I had to go back and I was like, well, let's, let's check this. How big of a like tax benefit do you actually get from maxing versus just going to the employer match? Right. And it's, 
just questions like that, where you're just, you have to kind of go back to, you know, does this actually make sense? Or have people just been repeating this so much that no one even questions it? Like, of course it makes sense, right? Of course you should max your 401k. But when you think about it, you're like, okay, well, maybe not for everyone. And so that's kind of the thing I want to do is like, is this true for everyone? Is it universal? Or is, or is there some nuance there that needs to be explored? I think, you know, certain people would, would benefit from that exploration. Was that a natural personality trait for you? To, to question assumptions, things like that? Or is that just something being in the finance world you've built up over time? I don't know if it's that, or I'm, I'm trying to think like maybe it came from childhood. Like I still remember, like, I think this word starts and remember, this is the story I tell. So I don't know if this is true. Maybe I was always <laughs> like this, but the story I tell, which, which this is a true story. I remember I lost my first tooth when I was like four years old or something in like preschool, I think maybe four or five. I can't remember exactly. And I, and I remember the, you know, I asked my teacher, what I do? Oh, put it under your pillow, put it in the back. So I did that. And then the next morning I woke up and it was still there. And I said, what, you know, the tooth fairy is supposed to come. What's going on here? And then I told my mother and she's like, oh, the tooth fairy was off. She came up with some story on the spot. Like the tooth fairy was off last night. Or so I can't remember what she said. So I was like, okay, that night I was like, guys, I, I, the tooth fairy didn't come last night. They were off or whatever. And I was like, tonight they're coming. So I like, pull my friends. That night, I was like, so like, oh my gosh, I'm going to meet the tooth fairy. Or I'm going to see the tooth fairy, maybe. So I go to sleep. I can barely sleep, right? And I, I do fall asleep at some point. But then in the middle of the night, I wake up to my mother putting her hand under my pillow or whatever. And I like pretend like I was asleep. I was like, what's going on? And I was like, I saw my mom walk out. I was like, okay. And I looked under it and there was money under there. And I was like, there was no tooth fairy. I just saw my mom do that. So then that kind of started this chain reaction of like, do I trust my parents? Like, not in like a, like a bad way. Like, I have a great relationship with my family. I'm just saying like, it was a skepticism, right? And then immediately I was like, Santa Claus isn't real. Immediately I'm like, everything after that, I've just been questioning everything. So I think that kind of set me on this path of questioning stuff and being skeptical and like, I need evidence. I need proof for something. So I, I don't know. That's the story I tell, but that's like the little, you know, be, so be careful with your kid. That's all I want to say. So like, it's just funny, you know, it's funny to me that that happened. But if I had to guess where it started, it, it that kind of started my, my skepticism, my questioning about things. Yeah. You got to love those childhood influences or experiences yeah. that really shape you talking about things that shape you. Like you're clearly extremely driven in, in terms of what you've been able to do, what you've been able to create, what you've been able to accomplish. Has there been a mindset of yours that has kind of like been at the root of all that? It's been extremely impactful for just the success, the success that you've achieved. Yeah. So I, there's different ways I think about this. I, um, there's a great quote by Josh Wolf. I'm trying to remember the quote right now. He says, I think it's failures, the failure to imagine failure or something like that, where he's just talking about like de-risking. If you think about trying to think about every risk possible and you just work hard enough, you can probably get rid of most of them so you won't fail. So if you like work hard enough, the probability of failure goes to near zero. Of course, you can't expect everything and you know expect the unexpected is always very difficult. But I think the idea, that idea comes back to another idea called success by exhaustion. And that idea, this is true both in finance and just kind of anything. It's just like, if you put in enough reps and you're prepared enough, like the probability of you failing on something becomes very, very small, right? And so you can think of this like as an investor or someone who's saving personal finance, the extreme you can go to is something like, um, imagine you just like save so much money that your investment returns don't matter. Like, of course you're like, oh, but my investment returns matter. But if you're good enough at saving, like, you can not have to care about your investment returns at all. Like it doesn't like, for example, you know, let's think of like, who's the highest paid movie star, probably the rock. Do you think the rocks investment returns really matter? Unless he has like really big goals to be like a 10 billion, hundred billionaire or something. It doesn't matter what he does with his money for his personal consumption. He's probably going to be fine. Right. Because he just has so much income. It doesn't matter. So for me, I think it's like something where I try to like, I've always, when I'm, when I do my financial planning or thinking into the future, I try to do like a three to 4% inflation adjusted return, which is not high. I'm not being like, I need seven, 8%, you know, and then a lot of times that's nominal. So maybe like five, 6% real. I'm asking for three to 4% real. That's always what I, I, I plan for. And I say, I just have to make up the rest elsewhere. Right. So that's kind of my thinking. So success by success by exhaustion is like one of these ideas where you just have, you just have such an overwhelming, like amount of work you've done that you it's hard to fail. And I think there's also this quote by, um, I think Scott Galloway, he said at the end of World War II, like for every gallon of gas the Germans had, like the Americans had 38 gallons, right? Like it was just like, they were so overpowered. They have so many more resources that they just could not lose the war by the end. Like it was just, it was un- impossible. So that's kind of the philosophy that drives me is success by exhaustion, just like putting in enough work that it won't matter what the other things happen. Of course, that never works out. There's some, there's a lot of luck involved in life. That's true. But that's just, that's how I try and minimize the impact of luck. So that's an approach you take to basically everything, not just how you're actually saving, but like your approach to work, yeah, yeah. your approach to writing. 
Yeah. I try to say like, I'm going to put out so much good work that like, you know, it's like, what's that quote? Like works be so good. They can't ignore you or something like that. Like that's not like a life philosophy of mine, but it's kind of related to that idea. Right. So like you just have to work so hard where it's like, maybe this, this person doesn't care. This person doesn't care, but you keep putting out enough good work. Eventually like people will catch on. And I think that's, that's my goal. Like I'm not a great marketer. I'm a terrible marketer. I literally just put, you know, I post something, put one tweet, I'll, you know, maybe retweet it in the afternoon and then I'll put, and I'll send it to my email subs. And then the next day I put on LinkedIn. That's it. I do four actions with every post, right? I only write once a week. So it's not like there's people putting out content. Oh, I got to hit on Instagram. I hit on this. I got to hit on that. Like they, a story, this, and it's just like, that's too much for me. Like, I just like very simple. Just put it out there. Keep putting it out there. Just make sure you put out the highest quality work you can. And that, that's where most of the work is, is in the, is in the work product itself. So now I'm actually trying to do a little bit more marketing, you know, as I'm, as I'm doing stuff now, but it's one of those things where it doesn't come natural to me. Yeah. Talk so. to me about that, like that personal evolution, right? Like, you know, probably you'd have more subscribers, you have more readers if you were doing all of those things. So I'm wondering how you think through just, just the overall alignment with like your authentic self, what works best for you and being able to comfortable in saying no to certain things, even if they might bring more just called overall success for you. Yeah. So I, I know how much marketing works and I've seen people do it very well it's just not in my personality to do that. It feels weird to me. I mean, there's exceptions to this rule. If I feel like something's really good, I might mention it more often, but, um, or if it's like really relevant to a moment, like for example, I wrote this thing on inflation, like, I don't know, eight months ago when inflation was just starting to kick up. And now that it's bigger, I, I promote that piece more because I feel like it's more relevant now than it was then. Right. But anyway, it just feels, it feels weird to me. Cause like, I'm not like, I put my stuff out there and I'm not, of course not everyone's going to see everything. I understand that. So that's kind of the, why I should market a little bit more. Cause there's people who actually like my work and would enjoy seeing it if I market it more. But I, I also remember like, Oh, I just posted this. And so maybe it's cause I'm coming from my perspective. I know what I did. And so I'm like, Oh, everyone's already seen that when that's probably not true. So I don't know. It's just a personality thing. I think I I'm very similar to like Morgan Housel and how he like thinks about this. Like he has an email list. He like sends an email once a month or something. Like he is like, does the worst marketing in terms of like him putting his work out there. He literally just posts on Twitter and that's it, but it gets shared because it's good. And right. So for me, it's like, I'm trying to write like stuff like at that level. And of course, Morgan's been doing it so much longer. He's the best out there, but that's kind of my thing. It's like, if it's good enough, people will share it. And our people are like, Oh, this is the idea. So like, if someone's like, Oh, you want to talk about market timing? I remember Nick's piece, even God couldn't be dollar cost averaging. They should just know that if they're really into that type of stuff, because I think the piece is that good. Right. So it's one of those things where like what matters most to me is quality. And I care less about marketing because I really believe in the long run, like, your, your stuff's going to get shown out there. Right. And I've obviously grown followers and that's happened naturally. So I feel like once you hit a critical mass marketing matters, I think a bit less, but I, I could be wrong. So, you know, I think like there's other people that would disagree with me on that, but you know, I'm, I'm happy just doing what I'm doing now. I don't, I'm not worried too much about marketing. Yeah. So. Back to the Steve Martin quote, you mentioned be so good. They yeah. can't ignore you. you put out that quality work. Yeah. I mean, at, at some point it's yeah. going to be, it's going to be viewed. It's going to be noticed there. I, I'm wondering about the mindset you talked about, right? Like working so much till exhaustion, What's the downside of that, right? Like every strength's got that just as equal opposite weakness there. And I'm wondering for you, have you run up against those weaknesses or the downfall of that? I guess the downside is like once you have a real, like, because if you do that enough, like your probability of failure drops very low. And so to be honest, I mean, I'm not saying this as like a brag or anything. I haven't failed in many things in my life. There are like, I've had social, you know, I've had issues with like drinking alcohol and stuff. We can get into some of that. Those are more personal, like social issues, but like in terms of work I've done, I haven't had many failures. And so maybe that's like, oh, I should be, maybe I'm not taking enough risk. Maybe because I'm trying so hard to kind of get this thing right, that it doesn't fail in the way. And so there, there's also a, there's a lesson there. It's like, maybe you're not pushing yourself hard enough. You're not taking enough risk. And that's a fair, that's a very fair argument, right? If you just never, and I don't know what that is. Is that me? Cause I'm like, oh, I don't want to fail. So I'm going to work so hard at this. So the probability of failure goes to zero. One of those types of things. Um, so I think that's kind of the downside is that maybe I'm not pushing myself hard enough because I'm just like, okay, I do this one thing. I do it well. And I don't, and you know, I just do that and I don't do anything beyond that. So I'm like, I'm going to get very good at doing one thing. Like I post one post a week. Like that's it. Like I don't try and say, I'm going to do three posts a week. And like, I, cause if I tried to do that, I don't think I could do successful. I can, I don't think I could follow my strategy of like putting out the highest quality work if I was doing that. And so then I think I would have a failure. So I'm wondering if it's like a, some sort of coping mechanism I'm using to prevent myself from failing at something, but also like 
still having enough balance. And I don't know, that's, we can, we can get into that a little, but it's, it's interesting to think about. Well, so. I'm actually really curious, like that relentless focus, that maniacal mm-hmm. focus, was that always intentional? Is that something you always had, or did you have to work through things in order to get to that place? Because I mean, in an age like today, right, we see so many people going after a hundred different things, trying to do everything right. And all of it just ends up sucking at some point. And so like, I really appreciate what you do, where you do have that really deep focus in what you go after. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I think it's just like do one thing really well. And like, honestly, when I started, like my first blog post was actually decent, but my second one was terrible. My third one wasn't great. Right. And so I got better as I kept writing. And so it's one of those things where you become a better writer if you do it enough. You really do. And now, of course, to what level? That's that's a that's a great question. But if you really focus and like have just really deliberate practice and like you read up people who are better than you understand how they write, you kind of start understanding like you know, eloquence. I think it's a great book. If anyone wants to get better at writing uh, elements of eloquence, that's an incredible book. You're just going to learn all the tricks and trade of the English language. Like we have a quick example. Anytime you're listing stuff, list three things. Don't list two, don't list four, right? Yeah, obviously, unless there is four, there are two, right? Or there are four or two things, then you have to do that. But if you're just like trying to like make a list of three things, like use three every time. I don't know why it just sounds better every time. There's a bunch of these little kind of um, rhetorical techniques that just make your writing sound better. And I can't explain why, but if you read someone who gave a list of three and then read someone who gave a list of four, it kind of feels different. So you're going to learn things like that as you start writing and it'll just make you sound better. And I don't know why that is, but it, it, it just, it sounds better when you're reading it. So what came first for you? The love of finance, their love of writing? Uh, finance for sure. Yeah. I actually hated writing. Um, do you, do you still, that, is it still like, are you no, still like, no, 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 I love it now. <laughs> I think I hated it because I mean, I wrote, I wrote a little bit in high school, like not like personal stuff, but I was always writing. I think the reason I hated writing was because someone else was telling me what to write. Like think about it's the, it's the worst thing I think is, is the education, you know, the educational system in writing because they make you, okay, you need to write a, they tell you the length 500 word essay on or a thousand word essay or 10 page essay on this topic, right? They tell you what you have to write on. Now, when you do that, you're not going to have as much fun as when you get to pick the topic and you get to pick the length and you get to pick everything else. So if I was doing a writing class, I would just say, write about whatever you want, any length, you just have to impress me. I want you to just dazzle me, like really just blow my mind. I don't care what you can write about a personal story about something that happened to you. You can write about something you're really interested in. I do not care. And if I think if you give people free reign and then they still turn in a crappy work product, then sorry, you're not going to be a good writer. But if you give people free reign and they still, and they can, I'm obviously, you know, when you're young, you'll get better over time. But I think people would write a much better story if they just had the free reign to write about anything they wanted to, you know, and maybe we could even give categories about things that that might help. But like, I think that's the big piece is like, write about what you want to write about and you will love writing so much more. And I just hated it in school because I was always writing about what other people wanted me to write about. What about at this stage oh. in the game for you? Like how much is your writing actually improving? I don't know. And that's a great question. I think it's getting better here and there, but I don't know if it's improving too much anymore. Um, and of course you can always get better. Just little things. I think you have to be more deliberate. I think it's the amount of time you put in. So like, you know, when writing a book, for example, you're going to be putting in a little bit more time and then you're going back and forth with an editor and you're maybe arguing over a little, okay, I think this sounds better than this or stuff like that. But the blog post, like, I just put stuff out there, see what hits. And I obviously still put in good quality. Like every line I feel like I read and it has to feel right to me. If it feels wrong, it's like a, what I call, what I've told David Perel is like friction. There's like writing friction. So like really good writing. I think you just, you shouldn't even realize you're writing. It's almost like Have you ever been to one of those doors where it like you push, but it's a pull or something? You know what I mean? Where there's that weird like moment you have when you're at a door and you're like, what the heck is this a pull or a push? And like, you're just confused because the door handle's wrong. That's what bad writing's like. Like when you're reading bad writing, you have to, you like notice the writing, like really good writing is just effortless. It's just like, you know, it's just like butter melting. It just happens. It flows down the page. You don't have to think about the writing. And when you're thinking about the writing, it's either usually very bad or it's so good. You're like, oh my God, this writing is just incredible. Like, so it's one of the two, right? So most people just stay in the middle. Don't try to be like something on the far right. where like, I'm trying to write this most eloquent thing because a lot of times you can screw stuff up. So if you're just, if your writing's just like in the middle somewhere where it's just nice and easy and clear and easy to read, that's the goal. If you happen to be eloquent or something and pull off a Morgan Housel, that's great, but you don't need to do that to be a good writer opinion can you talk to me actually about like your writing process i'm just intrigued how, how you approach uh, an article uh, we'll, we'll use that we'll get into the book later about the actual the craft yeah, there yeah. and how you approach it. i would love to know what an article is like for you yeah so for me it's just i you know have an idea somewhere in my head i want to write something and Where's i always like this from? Is, 
that's a great, this is a question people have been asking for centuries and millennia, like where do great ideas come from? I don't know, maybe I'll read something and think this is cool. I'll remember some other reference to something else. Like it's usually two or, I only need like two or three connections in something. And I'd be like, okay, that's something like, that's a little story there. Like, like, okay, I remember someone. So for example, this week I wrote about status and when I'm writing about status, like I remember, okay, Rob Henderson is a guy writes a lot on status. He wrote this piece that shows this thing. And then I remember this study that showed like people with higher income care more about status than people of lower. Once people have high status, they're very afraid of losing it compared to people with low status. And this is something that I experienced throughout my life. You know, I grew up like, you know, lower middle to middle class, never cared about status, never knew anything about status, right? It was just like celebrities and normal people. That was it. That was status for me. And then as you get older, you kind of get into different, you know, environments, you start to notice status in subtle ways, subtle, you know, whether that's money or fame or prestige or, you know, uh, all sorts of relationship status, social status, all sorts of stuff like that starts to happen. You start picking up on that. And then as you start to gain a little bit of status, you start like thinking about it. And it's so interesting to me how that works, like how I didn't used to care at all. And now I do. And now there's like some actual empirical evidence that, oh, that makes sense because that's what generally happens to people. So it's super interesting to kind of think about things like that. So in my in terms of my process, I'll just like start in the first sentence and just keep going until I feel like it's right. And then next sentence and the next sentence. And so I'm not one of these people that like outlines and just, oh, just write a ton and then edit later. No, that's not me. That's not me at all. I'm like, get it perfect from the beginning. I'm much more of like a, you know, I guess if, if you know a little bit about the composition styles, it's like Mozart versus Beethoven. Mozart just tries to write it perfectly, like at the beginning and Beethoven will write a bunch and then edit a ton. Right. So I'm more of like the Mozart out there than Beethoven. And I'm, I'm not comparing, I'm not a Mozart. So my percentile rank as a writer is not Mozart's percentile rank as a composer. I'm just saying that their composition styles is what's relevant here. So, yeah, you, you mentioned just figuring out where the ideas come from, right? Like that's the billion dollar mm-hmm. question there, but mm-hmm. you also seem to pull from a lot of different sources. Like even in that status piece, like you're mentioning Robert Sapolsky, like all these different mm-hmm. sources. So I'm wondering like, mm-hmm. what are you doing on a weekly basis? Just so you even have a better, just like golf, golf bag, right. With, with a lot of different clubs in it to be able to pull from for different pieces. Yeah, I think a lot of this, I pre, I would say I pre-gamed like a lot of this stuff because I read so much in the past. Like I'm not reading as much now. I do read books here and there, but you know, for like three or four years in a row, I was reading like 50 books a year. Right. So I was almost reading one book a week. And when I was doing, I was just reading so much that like, it's just sitting and it's like a lot of stuff I forget about. And then it's like, wait, you want to talk about stress? Oh, let's go to Sapolsky. Oh, you want to talk about uh, status and stuff? Let's go to Sapolsky because he talks about that with like baboons and stuff. Oh, you want to talk about this thing? Let's go to this person. Let's go. You want to talk about this? Let's go to this person. Like, oh, you want to talk about violence? Let's talk about, you know, the power, uh, Naomi Alder, right? Or let's talk about, you know, Rianne Eisler, you know, Chalice and the Blade, right? You, If you start giving me topics, I can start already thinking of what books I might look into or where I might go to find something or like... Oh, you want to talk about, you know, safe havens investing for a century? That's uh, Wealth Worn Wisdom, Barton Biggs, right? I already know like which places to go to once we start talking about certain topics. And I bet there's a quote in there that's going to work for like a piece, right? So that's kind of thing. Like, I don't remember all the quotes. I'm like, oh, I know this is kind of directionally where I want to be. And then I've highlighted everything in Kindle. And then I go through that. So for me, like the highlights in Kindle is like, it changed my life. Like I don't, I really don't read physical books because like it's much harder to remember everything is. And so with Kindle, you can search across all your books and all the text. Like, and honestly, if Amazon wanted to, they can make this so much better, but they really don't because it would just, it would change everything as a researcher. Like if I could just search the term like gold and say, show me every single book that has gold in my library, which one has the most references? And then which ones were my highlights? Like, oh my gosh, that would change everything. Cause it's like, I could just go right into my mental map of knowledge, find, okay, this one has the most gold references. Here's all my highlights. I can just look through those. Oh, perfect. That's the quote I was looking for. And so the worst, the one of the worst feelings in the world for me is like when I'm looking for a quote and I, I'm like, I know it's something like this, but I can't find it. And that drives me crazy. And so I hate it so much. I'm like, oh, I know it's in one book. I can't remember which book. And so I'm searching for different terms and like, gosh, it's one of the worst feelings in the world. Cause I, you know, cause you know, it's out there, you know, it's so good, you know, it adds to your piece, but like, you can't remember where it is and you, I don't want to lie and just make something up obviously. So that's always tough, but you know, it's a long, long way to answer the writing process. Sorry. About no, no, that. no, no. I love this. Believe me, the, the depth here is great. I, I'm a huge fan of the Kittle highlights as well. I know exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about there. Just being able to go back in search. I, I'm also like intrigued about just having all of that, that past experience. You mentioned like you had read all of those books. So you've got all directionally, you know, where to go. Did that make you a way better writer or would it be better if you can't, like, I guess I'm wondering around 2017, like where you really started to write. I don't know if you had that depth of experience with reading and all these additional sources you could pull from. And if not, how different is your writing now because of that? 
So yeah, before 2017, I was still reading, but probably at like 20 to 25 books a year, you know, and then I, that went up once I started writing, but I think reading is the best way to like, just, it's like fueling your fire, right? It's like every, you imagine your brain, your brain's just an information processing machine. So when I send you a piece of information, whether that's, you know, I, I say it to you or you read something, you're going to, it's going to hit your brain differently than hits mine because you have different experiences. You've read about different stuff. You're like, oh my gosh, that reminds me of this, which reminds me of this. And so if you and I sat down and wrote a piece on status, we would have different, you know, obviously we have different life experiences. That's one, but you've read different stuff than I have read. And so we would write very different pieces on the same topic. And I think that's what's interesting is like a lot of people can write on the same topic and you can have very different takes and also be just very intriguing in different ways. And so I think that what reading does, it just allows you just to take as much information as you can put it through your brain, which has its own way of looking at the world. And then like, you're going to start sorting it into like, okay, this information is relevant for that. This information, you may not even remember, you may just put it in like somewhere it sits back in your mind somewhere. You never access it. And later when you're thinking about something else, you're like, Oh wait, that reminds me of this thing. And then you connect it. Right. And that's where you get like kind of these aha moments when people are reading your piece and they're like, Oh, wow. That's kind of interesting. That's not even related. Like that's a book on stress and primates. How is that related to status? Oh, cause they talk about this or, Oh, that's on this. Oh, cause they talk about that. Right. So I think it's kind of cool when you can do that because it shows like this, you know, much more wide breadth of things you've read. And it also shows like, that's kind of how ideas work. There's like a lot of things that are, that are related and, and analogous in ways which are really useful. Have you gotten better at being able to spot the patterns in terms of you unlocking that creativity, those aha type moments? Or is it just you're sitting down there at the computer typing and they're coming if they're coming? Or like I even know Housel, he talks a lot about like he'll go out for a really, really long walk, like pretty much every single day to spark his thinking. Is there anything that mm-hmm. you do like that? Or is it just, nope, I'm down at the, comp- the the keyboard here pounding this away? I'm, I'll just be down at the keyboard. And if I know like, oh, hey, I'm writing this piece. I'm like, oh, you know what? I need to add this. I know this quote's good. I'll go get the quote and just throw it in there. I don't know when I'm going to use it, but I'll come to it later. Yeah. So that's the only outlining I do is like, sort hard source material. I'm like, okay, I might drop a couple things in there and then reference them later or figure out how to reference them and weave them into the piece. That's about it. So yeah, people have different things. People walk. I remember sometimes I get when I'm running, I might get like a, you know, moment of inspiration. It's all, it hits you at different times. I remember over the years, one time I was at like this, you know, I was at a firm training, like one of those offsite training things. And I got hit with this idea of, what if I aligned all the drawdowns, like, you know, from the bottom, like the bottom or from the peak to the bottom of every, you know, like great depression, 74, you know, Oh wait, if I just align them and see how they recovered, like, what would that look like? Like, I just don't know what that chart would look like. And that one little idea became a blog post that I think did decently well. So it's one of those things where you're, it's pretty cool to like, think about just data in that way. And I might just like, I don't know, why did that hit me? What I was at an offsite doing like, you know, yeah. you know, firm training stuff, you know, all that, like, you know, trust, you know, what it was called, know your colleagues, all that stuff, whatever it's called. <laughs> And, you know, team building, team building orders and for all that team building stuff. And yet somehow I was like, you know what, what do those drawdowns, uh, like a line drawdown plot? That's what came to my mind for some random reason. So yeah, this comes from anywhere. Yeah. One of the things I mentioned earlier, I, I love how you think through and how you write about decision-making. So I'm really intrigued just people in their life and just inflection points. And for you, New Year's resolution 2017, I would love for you to talk about that and just the overall decision-making process that went into that for you. Yeah. So I think what's super interesting is like, I had actually had an old notebook from like 2014 where I had like 10 like blog post ideas where it was random things like, um, you know, Roth or not to Roth. Like that is the question. It was like, it was a bunch of little, like just titles, just titles of like, okay, I can make like playoff, like other things in culture. And like, and I never did anything with, it. I just thought, oh, this would be cool to like write about these ideas. And I just never did anything with it, but I thought about it. And I, I didn't realize I had a moment where I was like, this could be something until it was late 2016. I kind of was feeling like I need to do something else, you know, have a side hustle or something. What with, were you doing at the time? I feel like my, I was working in litigation consulting in Boston and I, I liked my job. It was good, but I didn't see a future there. Like I liked it, but I wasn't passionate enough about it where I could build a career there. And so like, I was like making good money. That was fine. It wasn't about that. It was more about like the long-term prospects. And I was like, I need to do something else. I was like, you know, I love personal finance, but how am I going to do this? Like, how am I going to make it compelling? Like, I could just write about this. But that's one thing. I was like, you know what? <clears throat> I'm really good at R. Like, I'm good at programming. R is a programming language for those that don't know. It's kind of like Python or something, right? And I'm like, you know what? I'm really good at this. And I've learned how to organize data very well. Like, I know how to, like, bring data in, manipulate it, you know, create charts. I'm like, maybe I could do something where I write. And then every week... So we used to organize our data in a certain way where like you would have like an analysis, analysis one, right? So you'd import the data from, you know, file or, you know, folder zero one and then analysis zero one. So like the data comes in, you build the data and then you, you output something, right? 
And so we, we numbered everything. So number one, number two, number three. And I said, you know what? Why don't I just do that? Every every number is just a blog post. So I basically took what I learned in litigation consulting. Like literally, if someone worked at you know my my ex company and they saw my GitHub you know repository and they looked at my code, they'd be like, you literally set this up like how an entire corporation sets up its data structures like internally. And so I just, I stole, I mean, it's just an idea, right? There's nothing, I didn't take it in proprietary. And so I just, sorry. So I just like set that up and basically I was like, I'm just going to write one post a week. And it's just every post is like an analysis. It's just like, I'm doing an analysis for my work or something, except it was a personal thing. And I just started doing that. I did it every single week. Eventually, you know, uh, found a, you know, financial wealth management firm that I could work at. And this is kind of independent of that, but yeah, that's kind of just how it happened. It was like, it started slow once a week and I just kept doing it. And I just haven't stopped for 285 or 86 or something. I don't know how many weeks now. This is 280 something weeks now in a row, basically. So yeah, Nick, any, any overall thoughts, right? Like someone else listening to this, they're like, you know what, what, what I'm currently doing, I, I'm just not feeling totally fulfilled in this and weighing through dabbling with something else, trying something else, anything else that you've learned about that process that could be helpful. I highly recommend it just and find something you love. Cause if you're just, if you go in and you're like, I just want to make money or I just want to do this. I think it's much harder to succeed. I went in just saying, I want to do this for like me as a person, not to make any money. Like that was never the goal. And I didn't make anything for three years. Then I started running ads. So I started making a little bit of money on it and that's fine. But I think you really have to love it. And the reason is, it's like, cause if you don't, you're going to give up. Right. And like, I do it cause I love it. And I think there, I always see these tweets like, why would you work in finance when you can work at tech? It's like, some people just like finance. Yeah. Have you ever considered like, <laughs> some people love this stuff? Like no offense to tech. I have nothing against people that work in tech. That's great. But like, I have no interest in that. Like I really am not a tech person. Like I obviously, you know, I know, understand basic technology, things like that. I'm a data person a little bit, but like, I care about like financial markets. Cause it's like, it's like a biological system. That's super interesting to me. And it's like, not something you can, it's not, it's not perfectly solvable. Right. Which is kind of cool. And so there's a lot of stuff I like about it. And it's just like, yeah, some people just like it. And, and some people can't wrap their heads around that. And so I know I see a lot of people who get into this game just to like, you know, they want to just build a business and make a bunch of money and sell a bunch of courses and all this stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's a lot of people that are adding value doing that. At the same time, if that's your only goal, I think it's going to be really tough for you. And I think it, it shows, right. It shows in like, when you're writing, when you're putting out content, it's it's very obvious to people who are just trying to sell something and the people who are like really just care about it. And my favorite writers across the board are people who just care about it. Like I know Morgan's obviously made a lot of money in his book and he's done well and everything, but he cares about it. Like he actually, like you can tell he just loves this stuff. And that's why it comes across very obvious. It's very obvious. He's not out there trying to market everything. And there's a lot of people like this, right? There's a lot of people you can be like, that person really loves that or that person really loves that. I can, you know, I can list people, but you get the point, right? And I think a lot of that's longevity too. Like you don't write for 15 years about finance just because you're trying to make money. You write about 15 years about finance because you love finance, right? And that's kind of the idea. What about for you, that decision three years in to actually start trying to monetize it? What led to that? Uh, I just had sufficient page yeah. views and I was like, oh, you know, maybe I should just try and monetize a little, you know, and it's, it was just, I'm, it was still free. I wasn't like, I don't want to do Substack and lock up my content. I never want to do that because I know there's people out there that couldn't afford it and I would feel terrible that they couldn't read it. So I'm like, okay, how are you going to pay for it? You're going to pay for it with a little bit of your time in terms of a little bit of your attention in terms of ads, right? You're going to see ads here and there. And I think people understand that it's like ubiquitous out there. And some people are like, oh, I hate ads. And it's like, yeah, but it's free. I'm giving out free content. Some of this stuff has helped people a lot and like save people lots of money. And so I'm like, come on. It's like, it's really like you're giving me what I think the real loss is like two cents. You're giving me like every person that goes onto my site gives me like two cents or something. That's really what it is. I'm, I'm taking your two cents and I'm sorry that I have to do that. But it's like, I want to make a little bit of money on it. Sorry. You know, I'm not trying to do, you know, anything that crazy. I'm not like trying to, you know, make it so, so um, the, the barrier too high, but it's like, you know, you're getting free content. People have been reading me for years. It's like how many, you do two right. cents times even all my articles, like five bucks or something. Like, you know, it's like, what is that? What is like, I'm not charging anything. There's people out there charging, you know, a $3,000 course and stuff. I'm, I've literally charged you $5 if you read every single post, right? It's like, it's penny. So that's that's kind of how I think about it. So I'm wondering, so you, you make that New Year's resolution back in 2017. I'm going to mm-hmm. release an article a week for you in, the, in those first couple of years. Was there like anything you did just to have like a leap in your in your learning curve? Right, like I, you're freelance doing this. I'm just wondering if there's anything that you were doing at that time to really help you accelerate. I don't think there was anything in particular. I was just like very adamant about like I need to get something out, and I always just need to have ideas. I was like, okay, I'm gonna just look up. So early, I was like, I'm just gonna get a bunch of data sets. So I'm like, I'm gonna look at pure labor statistics. I'm gonna look at consumer expenditure survey. I'm gonna look at you know some of the Fed data, whatever it is. And I'm like, I'm just gonna analyze data and just find something and throw something out there. And I did that and. 
early on, my pieces were all over the place. Some were really good. Some were kind of terrible, you know, and then I started getting much more. I started to realize like it actually started as like an economics and finance blog, but I started to realize like my finance content was much better and people liked it a lot more. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to double down on that a bit more and just talk more about finance and kind of talk about that. It seemed like my more natural inclination to talk about investing in, in personal finance. So I just kept working on that basically. So I think early on, explore a lot of stuff and figure out what you're decent at. And then you can expand. And like, even that since then, I've written personal pieces. As I said, I've written about my struggles with alcohol. I've written about, you know, uh, regrets I had from, you know, one of my, the first girls I ever, you know, really liked when I was in high school. Like I've written about all sorts of personal things, but generally those are like, those come like one in every, you know, eight to 10 posts maybe. So most of it's financial and that's kind of what my core audience is there. But every once in a while, you know, you got to be like, you know, I think it's like kind of therapy for me to write about that stuff. And I think it's cool. And people like relate to that more than I get more people DMing me about my alcohol posts than I do about any financial posts I've ever put out. So that says something in itself. So, yeah. I mean, we all have all these unique different experiences. We, we, Mm -hmm. we all show up as we are. You have some really interesting ones, right? Like I'm just hearing you talk, right? Like, yeah, finance background, writer, litigation lawyer. I, I know you played mm-hmm. music back in high school, programmer, right? Like, yep. are you just, have you always just been interested in a lot of different topics or like, how, how did this happen? Right? Like so many people yeah. are, are focusing kind of like one category. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much, I like breath. And that's, I think because of that, that's what makes me a decent writer as well, because I'm interested in so many things. And I think- one of the things, like I remember very early on, the first time I met Jason Zweig, right, who's like basically the person that inspired me to even get into this at all. I remember meeting him, and I said, "If you had, any, if you could tell yourself something, right, you're talking to yourself, you know, I'm, I was 27 at the time. He said, "What would you say?" He said, "I read a lot of books, but not about finance or not about investing, basically." And so the whole premise there was like the more other things you read, the more breath you have, you're going to just see parallels and it's just going to, it's going to bring your writing to life. And so that's what I really try to do. Sometimes I try to add those types of stories when I find them or analogies that, cause then you're like, wow, you learn, cause you know, a lot of people are coming to me to learn about finance. That's great and all. But when I add something else, the financial crowds, even the people who like already kind of know finance pretty well are like, wow, I didn't know about that. And that's a similar thing to hear. Right. You know? So one of the, for, for example, there was one, um, uh, there's one post where I was trying to show like the, the most con, like the best market predictor out there and why it's useless. And so I was like showing how like if you actually look at the average allocation to equities among investors, when it's very high, it's usually not a good time. You want to kind of get out of stocks. And when it's low, you want to get in basically. And that's obviously related to prices, but how people are, you know, buying and selling stocks versus bonds. So that was like a decent indicator. But I the story I led with was about these cichlid fish. And it was basically talking about how like the supply and demand of, of males versus how many male and females were in a local environment determined how the males behaved. And it was very interesting, like how it's basically supply and demand. And so that's kind of the same idea with this like supply and demand of equities, right? And how that's related. So I start with the story about these fish and how like the supply and demand of females uh, changes their behavior. And then I kind of relate that to supply and demand in markets and how that, you know, affects uh, future investment returns. So it, it's one of those little things where like the, the investment people would know all that other stuff. They're not going to know about the cichlid fish most likely. Right. So it's one of those things where you can add a little bit of color to a piece and kind of, you know, find some cool analogies. Yeah. Any other really great analogies or just pieces that you've enjoyed writing over the years that, that taps into something like that? Um, that, that was one of my favorites. I'm trying to think of any others. Like there's, there've been so many, I'm just trying to remember them all right now. Yeah. Like, throwing you off the spot here with um, this. <laughs> yeah. So let me try and think there was a, so I like the analogy of the, the, uh, the Voyager missions where they sent out, you know, these, like, I don't remember these, they had said Voyager one and Voyager two, and they sent them out, um, to like these, this is the, the object that's the furthest from earth. The furthest man-made object from earth is these like little like capsules they sent out. They're sending back information still to this day. They're sending back information. They're going to like, eventually they're going to get so far out. They can't send it out. They're going to die or freeze. I don't know what's going to happen to those capsules, but there was this analogy between that, like thinking about what you do early on. It's a, it's a compounding post, right? Like that little difference in trajectory early on can make a huge difference later. And how like the, the, actually the second voyage, the one that was sent out second, because of its trajectory, and how it was um, sent out, it actually is further out than the first Voyager one, even though it was sent out after. So you think like in a race, like the one who leaves first wins, but not if your trajectory is different. You kind of use, it basically just slingshot it off planet so that it actually traveled a lot faster than the first one. So it's a very interesting kind of physics question, but at the same time, you know, it's how is that related to saving compounding? Well, yeah, if you save a little, just a little bit more earlier, you can kind of set yourself on a, off on a better trajectory. So that's kind of a, that's a fun analogy and it's easy to understand compounding. And that one's called The Constant Reminder. So that's a good blog post. People will like that one. So, yeah. Awesome. We'll have that linked up. Nick, I'm really <laughs> intrigued about how you 
evolve as a writer, as a person, right? Like now tackling this new task of writing a book of the book's title, just keep buying. And I'm wondering for Mm -hmm. you, how is that different than what you've been doing for the past five plus years? So it's different in that I think what I think I've learned, and of course, I'm not going to speak for all authors. I, I have no idea how they write, but what I do is everything for me is structure in a book because half of the book was old blog posts that I basically took, reformed, kind of had my my editor go over, we went back and forth on it, kind of really cleaned it up. And someone was like the Frankenstein monster. I took some piece from one blog post, some from another. And I said, oh, hey, I've kind of touched on this topic in three ways. Let's create like an ultimate, like, you know, greatest hits of that idea, like together. So that's kind of what I did for a lot. So half of the book was old material, half I say is new. So even people who have read a lot of me, they're going to see a lot of new stuff and they'll be, they'll remember, oh, I remember this piece kind of from back in the day. And it's kind of, I just, I wove it together. And the, the key thing there, the key insight I had is everything is structure. So how I kind of structure the book is like the first chapter lays out everything. So basically there's this idea called the save invest continuum and everyone's on it. And all you need to know is two numbers. So you need to know like how much can you save in the next year? Like how much, you know, if you can save 500 bucks a month, times 12 months, let's say that's 6,000. So that's your first number. The second number you need to know is how much can your investments return you in the next year? So let's say you had, I don't know, $20,000 and you could earn 5% return on that. So that's $1,000. So that's your second number. So six grand is how much you can save. 1,000 is how much your investments could expect to earn you in the next year. And I say, which one's bigger? The bigger number is the one you have to focus on. And obviously if they're similar size, you have to care about both. So what that means is you need to, if you have, if you can save 6,000 a year and your investment is only gonna earn you 1,000, focus on saving saving more money and getting that money invested so that the other number goes up. You basically, over time, your saving number should be higher early in your life. And as you get older and you've started saving and investing more, your investment number should go up and up and up, right? So it should kind of be like a, so that's why I say it's a continuum. Most people start, you know, when you're young and, and relatively have very few assets, you can save probably a lot more than your investments return you. But as you get older, especially once you're retired and you can't save at all, your investments are basically everything. So it's basically like, the whole argument is where should you focus in your financial journey based on where you are today, right? And that's kind of the whole idea. And so that's how the book was laid out. There was a saving section and an investing section. So if you're like really heavy, if you like, if you can, if your investments can earn you a hundred thousand a year and you can only save 30,000 a year, you probably need to focus more of your time on the investing section of the book, right? And then vice versa. If you're young and just started, you probably don't need to care as much about the investment section. You can read it for fun, but you really need to focus on, okay, well, how do I grow my income? How do I, you know, set everything up so that I'm in a good place savings wise to, to invest my money and then, you know, grow it. So I think that's kind of the key there. Yeah. I'm wondering, are, are there any things that just became a lot more obvious for you throughout this process of writing the book around just personal finance and as a whole? Uh, I think one of the things I, I learned just from doing, I just did a lot of research. Like I literally spent, wonder, yeah. I literally had two things. I had two tabs that I added to my bookmarks bar that weren't normally there. Google Scholar and the synonym.com, whatever that, like the thesaurus thing there. So, cause I was like, I'm just constantly looking up different words to say the same thing. And then in, in addition to that, I spent a lot of time with Google Scholar saying like, well, what does the empirical research say on this? Right. So for example, one of the things I learned was like most emergency expenses in the United States, like, oh, I had an emergency expense and, or like people going bankrupt from like emergency issues is from healthcare. It's health-related issues, basically across the board. It's like most of them are health issues. It's not like, oh, I crashed my car and like that caused, like that can obviously happen, but most of the time it's healthcare-related issues. And so once you know that, that kind of, that tells you a lot about like, okay, well, that's something that people really need to care about, right? Like that's a, that's a big issue. Or, you know, I was looking into like, you know, something called borrower savers. And those are people who, they, let's say they have a thousand bucks in their checking account, but they also have $500 in credit card debt. And you'd say like, why would someone like, why don't they just pay off the credit card debts, high interest debt, and then just have, you know, you know, have $500 in cash and no credit card debt versus a thousand bucks in cash and $500 in credit card debt. And it might seem irrational, but once you look into the literature, you realize these people are really liquidity constrained and they really care about having enough liquidity. So paying off that credit card debt could really hurt them if they need cash right away. So there's things like that. So as I just, just did a lot of research, it was just interesting to learn different things about the personal finance and investing community. So that was kind of the big thing for me. It's just, you know, what I learned, I guess, in the process. Yeah. I just be curious. It's like a total personal question here, trying to think this through and everyone's going to be different. Mm-hmm. So everyone's got a different opinion here. I kind of like think about the time value of money, right? Like mm-hmm. how much should I put away for later? Or should I use that to spend on things right now? Such as like a vacation with my parents, right? Like they're not going to be here forever. So how do I weigh mm-hmm. through like what I'm putting my money towards right now, even though I know I'm going to miss out on huge returns in the future? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's ways to, so I, the issue here is like spending guilt. And I kind of talk about this a little bit. And there's a couple of ways you can do this. First is like figure out what really brings you fulfillment and then just spend 
like not as much as you want, but spend, you can spend a little bit for uh, not, not frivolously, uh, a little um, exorbitantly in those categories, but then you need to cut in other areas that you don't care as much about. Right. So if you're like, I don't care about fancy cars, then just get a nice car that works. Right. A dependable car. But if you really care about vacations, then, you know, it's okay to like upgrade and do that type of stuff. It's like, you have to figure out what you care about. That's going to bring a lot. That's going to bring a lot of fulfillment. That's the first thing. Second thing to get rid of Gil is what I, what I call the two X rule, which is like, okay, you want to spend, you know, let's say a thousand dollars on this vacation with your family or something. I'm just throwing a number out there. Okay. You should save another a thousand and invest that in the market. So you feel yeah. like psychologically you've gotten rid of that guilt, right? That's kind of the idea is to get rid of guilt. And so I don't want you to feel guilty about spending time with your parents. Like, oh my God, I could have more money in the market. Cause I guarantee you when you're 65, 70, whatever, whenever you plan on retiring, you're not going to look back and be like, you know what? I shouldn't have spent that money. I wish, I wish I had the extra, you know, whatever, let's say gross six X and you spend a thousand bucks. You're like, Oh, I wish I had that extra six grand. You're not going to say that when you're 65, I almost guarantee if you have the extra six grand, you would probably pay 10 X that to go and have that vacation with your family. So think about that type of stuff when making those types of decisions. Gotcha. So, yeah. That's helpful. Well, one of the big ideas you had is like fund the life you need before you risk the life you want. I would love to, for you mm-hmm. just to talk to that concept. Cause I feel like not, not enough people think that through. Yeah. So this is in, is in relation to selling, you know, fund the life you need before you risk it for the life you want. And what that means is like, let's say you, I don't know, you have stock options at a company or you put a lot of money into, let's say Apple in like 2015, and now it's grown to a lot. And now it went from like, it was a small percentage of portfolio. Now it's a big portion of portfolio. And my whole thing is like, I trust me, I'm the book's called just keep buying. I'm generally, you know, not a big promoter of selling because of tax reasons and for a host of things. But I think there are times when it's okay to sell and sell to a point where you can kind of lock up a certain like, you know, minimum level of lifestyle. And so I've seen people who had so much money and they're like, Oh, I already made 10 X. I'm going to make another 10 X this year. And instead of selling and taking some off the table and saying, you know, I can lock up a nice little lifestyle like this. And even if I lose the rest, I'd be okay. They don't do that and they keep going and then they lose 80 or 90% and then they're down way below where their lifestyle could have been, right? And that's the thing I think about. It's just de-risk. It's just de-risking. That's all it is. And so I recommend people de-risk periodically. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, if you're like, I don't care. I don't care. I just want to be a billionaire or nothing, then there's nothing I can do for you. Good luck, right? That's kind of the thing, right? So. So there, and that's fine. If that's your, if that's your utility curve, that's like your, how you think about happiness, what's going to make you happy, then do that. That's completely fine. But, you know, I think a lot of people will generally be happier if they kind of de-risked a little. And then in the event where it keeps going up, okay, that's fine. But you still, you don't sell everything. I'm, I'm very, I don't like really making all or nothing decisions. I think that's really, because that amplifies risk in one way or another, right? If you, if you sell everything, you amplify the risk of it going up a ton and you having tons of regret. If you sell nothing, you amplify the risk of it going to zero and you having tons of regret. So like there's a fine balance of like, what's the optimal amount to sell so that I can, you know, have a decent lifestyle, but also prevent myself from, you know, feeling regret later. Yeah. I know you've mentioned multiple times, like you're big into the data. Is there anything like that? You can Mm -hmm. still look at the data, you know, what logically makes sense, but for you, you just have an internal struggle with for me, it's probably uh, physical real estate. And I do talk about this in the book, like buying versus owning, and, or I'm sorry, uh, buying versus renting. For me, I think I'm biased against physical real estate because what I saw my parents go through, we both, you know, we all live in Southern California. My dad had a second place. Um, you know, he was renting it out. Like, you know, prices were going up. People were playing on equity. My mother was doing the same thing, refinancing all that stuff. And when it crashed, you know, houses were underwater. Like we bought houses, houses were underwater. And it's like, why are we paying this? And so, I saw them, I saw my, both my father and my mother, they had divorced when I was six. Uh, I saw them both lose their houses and it's, yeah. it's kind of crazy to me. So I've always been like kind of, you know, arms length away from real estate. I do own REITs and stuff like that. That's different to me. Um, and they don't behave in the same way as an individual property. So I've always had an arms length real estate. I know the data is there. I know it's a good return. I know you can do a lot with it, but I'm still debating. I think at some point, and that's what I say in the book is like, you're basically the, the question isn't if, but when for most people, most people do eventually buy. It's a question of finding out when it's right. And I've been waiting a lot longer than I, than probably most people, you know, I think would have waited, Yeah, you know? So I think that's the thing for me. I'm wondering, are there any other like big ideas in the book that you're like, you know what, if, if you're really intrigued by finance, you can't miss this overall concept. Yeah, I think there's a couple, I think there's two, I think my, my favorite, chapters in the book or for chapter 14, which is like, um, even God couldn't be dollar cost averaging. And the idea there is just about, I mean, if you if you know a little bit about my blog, you'll have heard of this, but basically the idea is like, even if you could perfectly time market dips, like I'm going to say, okay, you're going to save cash and you're only going to buy at the exact bottom. And I'm like, I'm going to just tell you when the bottom is like, that's obviously that's never going to happen in real life. 
So if you compare that strategy to someone who's just buying every month, like most of the time, the person buying every month will outperform the person who actually knows about the dips. And you're like, how is that possible? Nick? Like, that doesn't make sense. Well, most simulations, that's true because the market's generally going up and to the right, which means these big dips where you actually, where it's very profitable to buy the dip are very, very rare. So most of the time when you buy a dip, you end up buying a much lower price. And I'll, I'll give you an example that makes this a little bit more clear. At the beginning of 2017, I actually wrote a, a blog post called Just Keep Buying, right? Which is kind of it that that eventually became the intro in some ways. I kind of ref I changed a little bit, but just keep buying the idea. I was I was talking about, you know, yeah, just keep buying, you know, you, you know, over time, you know, markets go up and you know, build wealth, et cetera. And I had a bunch of people say, but Nick, you know, the price to earnings ratio is so high now. You can't build it. It's too expensive. I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait it out. I was like, okay, that's fine, do what you want. Let's say they waited and they said, I'm going to wait for a big dip. They wait, 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 wait. March 2020 comes around. Actually, specifically March 23rd, 2020, which was the exact bottom when the, when the S&P 500 was down 33%. Let's say they waited till that exact point to buy, right? They've been holding cash this whole time. Since 2017, right? It's like, you know, you know, three years basically they've been waiting. The crash happens, they buy on March 23rd. Even if they had done that, they would have bought at prices 7% higher than they could have bought in early 2017. So it goes to show like, yes, dips happen and you can get them. And if you're especially you have to be perfectly lucky and do all that. But on top of that, you know, there's a lot of times that dip that happens is that a, that dip level is higher than where you could have bought initially. And that's the issue. That's why people mess up. So that's one of the big ideas I want to talk about there. The other one, chapter 17, which is my favorite chapter in the book. It's, you know, how to buy during a crisis. And basically it's just reframing how you think about, you know, why market crashes are usually good buying opportunities. And so, the idea is, okay, I'm not telling you, I just told you not to hold cash, right? So don't do that, right? You should just be investing as soon as you get your money. But if you do happen to have cash, let's say something happened, you just sold a house and then the market crashes, like this may be one of the best opportunities to buy, right? And the reason is just, it's simple math, right? For every X percentage decline, you need a bigger gain to get back to even. So if so, if a stock's at $100 and it goes down 50%, goes to 50, to get back to even for 50, go back to 100, you need a 100% gain. So your money's going to double going back, right? So you lose half, you go, but it doubles back. So that's kind of the idea there, which is which is interesting. And I think if you think of it that way, and then you think about, okay, well, how many years is it going to take to recover? You can now think about like, wow, that's like, what's the annualized return I would get from that, right? So if you said a 50% return, even if it took five years to recover, you're probably looking at it like, I don't know, eight to 9% compounded return, which is like decent. That's like basically the market average. But what if it doesn't take five years? What if it takes two years? And you're probably looking at like a 23% return over two years to get back to even. So you see how like that math works out. Like who wouldn't want a 23% return? Like, you're like, are you kidding? I would, I would buy that right away. Well, when the market's down 50%, and if you think, okay, it could recover in two years, like if you think that's a reasonable expectation, then you should be rushing out to buy, right? It's just a screaming buy at that price. So that's kind of the idea there. So Nick, this is awesome. Tons of, of really practical, helpful advice. And then you paint a really clear picture here. So I, I think for me, someone, a visual learner, I can really like map this out in my head based on how you're describing that. So I appreciate it. So the books just keep buying. You, you, we talked about multiple times, the amount of resources that you've pulled from in the past. I would love to know if you could do this, right? Like long form interview conversation and anyone throughout history, who would you just love to sit down with and just pick their brain? Uh, let me think about that. That's a great question. Um, can we assume? I'm wondering the the question I would ask is like, can we assume that they speak English, right? Yeah, Obviously, because yeah. most I would go to meet most people. They say, "What are you doing?" They wouldn't understand culture or anything. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't. I guess I would want to pick because I couldn't pick someone like Einstein or something like that. Those people, he's just too smart for me, and it's just very physics. And I, who would I pick? That's a great question. Let me think about this for a second. Um, I might do Seneca. I might probably do Seneca because he's like a Stoic philosopher and I might just ask him because like, how did he come up with these ideas? Like, how did you come up with this? You know, life is short, except for those, you know, all that type of stuff. I would just think it would be interesting to talk to him about that. Um, the other one might be Hetty Green. She was like the richest woman in Wall Street history. And like, she was painted out as this miser who didn't, you know, spend a lot of money. I might want to ask her, like, what is she really like? And how did she kind of think about this? And like, what she really is like crude as people say. And I, I mean, I think she was painted probably badly. I really like that book. It's called Hetty. It's a good book about her, but it's like the richest woman in Wall Street history. And it's just very interesting because she bailed out the city of New York two times. Like, it's so crazy to think about individuals had more money than governments. That's obviously very, very, very rare today. But back in the day, like in the late 1800s, like there were people that bailed out cities and governments. like wild to think about, but it's very true. Yeah, that's definitely so mind-boggling. Those are, those are some people. Those will both be interesting. There's so many people. Like, I would like to also like musicians and like, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, all these people that would just be super cool. Like, there's so many different things I'd ask about, but- 
you know, I'd probably have to pick someone in finance one because like my expertise is good enough where we could have a conversation. I'm talking to Mozart. He's going to be like, you don't know crap about music, but I would just ask him, you know, it'd just be fun. So I don't know, probably long form. Yeah. Someone in, someone in the financial area. So. I'm, I'm curious. You mentioned Seneca, one of the Stoics, like is stoicism something that, that you've read a lot into or has impacted you? Not too much, but I do like Seneca a lot. Like I'm not, I'm, you know, I need to, I need to read more on it, but I do like Seneca. I think his stuff's really good. Like shortness of, of life is one of the, one of the best books I've read around even a book, whatever it's, whatever his thing I've read. And so I really enjoy that. It's just kind of interesting because it's such a different take. There's so many people that say, oh, you know, there's, there's not enough time, you know, out there. And he's like, no, there's plenty of time. You're just not focusing. Right. And I think that a lot of that is like focus, putting your focus on one thing, not spreading yourself too thin. It's kind of gets back into that success by exhaustion idea in some ways. So I think that would be cool. But yeah, if I thought about it more, maybe I'd pick somebody else, but you know, just kind of quick off the top of my head, I think it'd be cool like to talk to people like that, you know, and there's so many interesting people alive today where you can actually just meet them and talk to them. And so there's probably more interesting people alive today than in all of history. If you think about it, just by definition, there's more of us. So like, if you assume that that percentage is the same, you know, and we're also more educated. So in theory, there should be more interesting people alive today than have ever been. So that's what's super interesting as well. So. Nick, well, this is a ton of fun for me. I, I'm pumped for you coming out with the book. I, like I mentioned, I've been a reader of your, of your mm-hmm. blog for a number of years now. So the books just keep buying, proven ways to save money and build your wealth. I know we're going to have it linked up so the listeners, you can easily click on the show notes here below to get it. Anywhere else you want them mm-hmm. going, Nick, just to stay in touch with you or check out the book. Yeah, you can check, uh, come find me on Twitter. My handle is at dollars and data. It's all one word, dollars and data. And you can also check out my blog of dollarsanddata.com if you're interested in that stuff. I should be writing once a week. Um, So yeah, that's about it. But appreciate your guys' time. Thank you for listening. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Nick. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.